That's been going on for the past 15, 18 years. <laughs> I don't know if you all heard what Christy said. She said 90% of the room just left. And we have had been blessed to have so many children over the years. Um, I think the highest count I had at any one point in time was 65. And they more than doubled the amount of the adults that were in here. And um, I think that's awesome, personally. So, yeah, every time that children leave, <laughs> the congreg uh, in here becomes echoey. So... All right, I'm going to put my glasses back on. Um, just so you know, there's a stool sitting up here. I am not going to use that stool in the process of the discussion unless I get too weak that I have to sit on it. That's why it's here. So, the subject of the series subject, and there will be more in the future on this, but is faith. And um, it's something that we all address in our lives, sometimes daily, sometimes we kind of just let things go, and it's only when things begin to get rough that we start thinking about it. Um, the reality is we will come back and forth to this topic and the use of this topic in our lives um, throughout our entire life. Um, it is a it is a subject, or it is such an important topic that God devoted many verses in the Bible to faith, as well as an entire chapter in Hebrews, and it's typically been referred to as the faith chapter, and it's chapter eleven in Hebrews. I'll let you guys go read that at some point. The simple act of sitting in one of these chairs, or any chair, is really an act of faith. Anybody heard that before? Yep. Anybody thought about that? <laughs> Probably most of us don't go about thinking to things in that precise of a level. The faith that the chair you choose will hold your weight, the chair is not broken... I would suggest for most of you, you have been repeating this act for so long with positive results, meaning that the chair didn't crumble below you, that you don't even think about it when you come back in because you've gotten the same positive result over such a long period of time. The chairs, when you walk in here, you probably are not thinking about whether the chair is going to hold you. You have a history with each of these chairs, right? They've come in. They've held your weight. They've uh, been good for you. The chairs tend to look good. They're still typically lined up. I don't know if you know why that is. Robin will come in here and, I don't know, once a month or, or more often, she resets the lines of these chairs. I know this because she comes to me and goes, is it straight? I tend to have a better eye line. But her eye line is good because most of the time I was like, yep, yeah, you don't need me here. And generally the chairs are clean and ready to go for you. Maybe based on this basic information, you do not need to give any more thought but just came in and sat down, right? Well, what if the chairs were dilapidated? I want you to think about this. Think about these chairs being dilapidated, what that would look like. Um, if they were torn, if they were scratched up, or maybe missing some of the screws. Just maybe... Would you think twice about sitting down in one of the chairs and be more specific about where you're going to sit? Maybe, right? So, well, maybe I could give you a little more information at least for you to think about. 
So, well, let me let me just do this. Uh, does anybody know what this is? Screwdriver. It says what? Yeah, pretty much it puts any bit into it, right? This one has, if it's a hexagonal or an octagonal, I can't really see that close. It has a bit in it, right? And this is great because it allows us to do a lot of things. Oh, there is another thing I wanted to show you. See, this is a screw that this bit perfectly fits in, and it turns it back and forth. Anybody recognize this screw? Drywall screw, no. I bet none of you have walked in here, flipped the chair upside down, and really looked at the screws. Really? Do you want to come look at this chair? You want to come look and see if you recognize this screw? I can't. That's where I spent my... Okay, you tell me. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. I can confirm this is a screw from under the chair. Yes. Oh, it's a screw from the bottom of the chair, right? Yes. Do you think one screw would be a problem being removed? Maybe, yes. Maybe, it's possible, but I'm going to set it up here. Thank you. What about two screws? Would that make you think a little bit more about what chair you're sitting in? What about three screws? <laughs> ah, Mike would never do that. They're probably extras, right? Four screws? Whoops. I dropped it somewhere. So fifth screw. How many screws would it take to make you start really thinking about the chair you're sitting on? Because obviously these screws have been removed from chairs in here, or a chair in here. Anybody going, uh, would he actually do that? Yes, he actually would do that. <laughs> so, if you turned over the chair, what you would find is that there are eight screws that attach the seat and back to the arms and legs. So have I removed enough to make it concerning for somebody to sit in? And which chair or chairs did I remove screws from? Or how many screws? Let me just get the rest of them. Oh, let's see. Does that start people thinking when I start to reach down for more? Because there are more down. No, there's not. I just removed four, and I removed one from each chair. That being known probably is not going to be concerning to you sitting in it, right? Anybody want to raise their hand if they think they're sitting in a chair I removed a screw from? No? You think all the chairs that you sat in have no, have no screws or all the screws are there? That one? Because it's next? Yeah, well, no. You're wrong. And the rest of you are correct. I did not remove any screws from chairs that I thought people would be sitting in. Okay? So, there you go. Faith is defined as the complete trust or confidence in someone or something, would you say you virtually have complete trust in the chairs in this church, considering most of you have been coming in and just sitting down, probably not even thinking about it for the past 15 to 20 years? Most, not all. Yeah? No? no? Well, Troy, we'll work on that for you. <laughs> I would say generally most of us that don't even think about us sitting down except for where we're going to sit, probably don't even think about the level of trust we actually have for the chairs that we're in here. Okay, And it's probably complete trust. 
What if we had complete dress for God the way we have it for the chairs that we just walk in and sit down because we don't have to worry about whether those chairs are going to be dilapidated or fall? What would our lives be like? I honestly think that we can get there. But I do not know about anyone here or out there in Zoom land But as for me, I do not have complete trust or confidence in anyone or anything. I'm with you, Troy. I don't trust or have complete confidence in anyone or anything. Why? We're human. There's other things that we're going to serve. Many things to ourselves. That we do not know everything that's out there, that the effect is going to be on all of those who are around us. Do I have a high level of trust? I have a high level of trust for many people. I would like to believe that my trust in our God is much higher than in other things. That may or may not be true. It may or may not exist. Um, I don't grab a remote and turn God on. I'm sure you would agree and say the same thing that as human beings, we do not have a complete trust really in anything. If we did, maybe there is no more growth that we need um, out of our faith. We're done. We can coast the rest of our lives. We don't have to build and work on faith. And God's not going to work on it with us because it's done. We have it. All in favor, say aye. I would like it to be there, but I don't believe it is. So that being said, there is nothing out there that would be capable of shaking your faith even temporarily. What I am suggesting is that maybe a better definition of faith might be a continued development of a deeper trust or a deeper confidence in our God throughout our life. And I specify it to our God because He's the only thing that I am aware aware of that is unchanging. When things change, they change for us all the time, We don't know tomorrow. But when they change, our ability to have faith in them could change. The biblical definition found in Hebrews 11.1 is this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. There is only one who can assure us of the things that we hope for after this life. Only one. The other half of the definition is the conviction of things not seen. I know I can walk over to this chair and sit down, and it's not going to be a problem. I see it. I've been aware of it. I know this is one of the chairs I took the screw out of, but it's only one screw. So I can still have faith where this is at. Make sense? But I can't see God. I don't know where He's at. Bible refers to Him as being in the third heaven. How do we get there? How do we touch Him? How do we see Him? How do we have faith in those things that are not there? Going back to the chair example, obviously a person would need more information as in who your faith is based in. So, 20, 
how long ago, Robin? 22, 23 years when we got these chairs, moved into the other building. No, not that long. How long? In this one? Okay. See? Drugs and memory. Always a problem. Okay, so 18 years. Okay, when we first put them up, we had to test them. We were hoping, and we let the youngest guys <laughs> first, right? So if they fell, less injury would happen. But the reality is people who knew what they were doing were the ones putting them together. Okay, so, but looking at that, would you need to know more information based on a chair that you just walked into a building? Is it dilapidated? Is it good? Is it stable? How many of you have gone back to high school for your kids and gone back in and sat in some of those chairs? Right? My bigger concern wasn't whether it was going to fall. I figured they would have those removed. It was whether I was going to stick my legs under and push up on the desk and push them into gum. Right? And, and then have the gum stick on me when I walked out. So, maybe those you have observed coming in and sitting down in the chairs with no issues, right? We're observing other people coming in and sitting down. Maybe that's part of how we can trust things. And it is. And it works that way with faith as well. I suggest that faith is a long or a lifelong skill that needs to be developed, it needs to be used, and it will continue to grow and expand until our death. The development of the category of faith begins in our infancy and continues to follow us until our life is over. It exists initially and finally in an eternal realm. And you're going, what? Where did it start from? It was that that was put from God to man. That has an eternal birthplace. And it will be that which leads us and sustains us and develops us closer in those relationships that we have with God so that we trust Him more and more and more until we die. The reality is... Most of our experience with faith will be in the temporal. Which is where we're living now. So what I'd like to do is look at the life of Moses. We're not going to read all of Exodus, I promise. But beginning at his birth, what happened? What was going on? Okay, Pharaoh decided to kill all the firstborn Jews... I think it was two years and under. Um, because of something his priests had told him about the coming of a king. So what did his mother do? His mother hid Moses for three months. But that got to the point where she couldn't hide him. She couldn't keep him quiet. Anybody have a three-month baby? Anybody ever experienced a three-month baby? I should be looking at everybody's heads, nodding, well, except for the, young, the older of the kids who are in there, right? Those who have been confirmed in here but have not been married, and yeah, you guys. <laughs> well, she eventually set him in a basket, and which had been, all the pitch had been done, so it had been water sealed, and she put him in the Nile. A Nile that is actually a very large river, um, full of crocodiles. That takes a lot of faith in itself. But was her faith in the basket? No, she did the best she could with the basket, but you never know. Her faith was in her God, the one that she had heard about since she was an infant, the one that her parents led her to 
be able to worship. The one that she experienced as she grew up. The one that kept him safe in a basket in a river with many different harmful things that exist. What if he would have floated out into the higher level, faster water? I had a brother-in-law who was a stuntman. He was up in Idaho and working on a 911 reenactment, and he got pushed, and his job was to flip over the boat and force everybody down the slower part of the river. Well, the fourth or fifth time they were doing this, he got caught, and only he got shot down the faster parts of the river. And in less than five minutes, maybe ten minutes at the most, he was shot down a mile down river over the rocks in the 40-degree water and before they could catch up with him. So it's his body. He was wearing some padding underneath the clothes, which I'm glad he took those you know, um, made those choices to wear those, but shot down a mile that fast. When they caught up with him, uh, he had been in a wet, oh, a wet, wet suit all day long, and being that long in the water, without being able to get warm, he had um, hypothermia, and he was covered in bruises all over his body. Luckily, he had no broken bones. Um, He ended up going to bed and and just sleeping. Now, here's the deal. If he couldn't go back to work the next day, any money that he would have made would have been lost. Was that just in my head? I'm just kidding. (laughs) So... The next person I want to talk about in Moses' life was his sister. His sister had a job, and that was to follow Moses while he was in the basket to see where he would end up. Now, this was an older sister, definitely not a younger sister, because you understand why. (laughs) She found out, or through her following, it led the basket to the princess of the Egyptian court. Her job was not only to find out where he was going, but then interact with that individual who had the basket, and that individual asked her to find somebody to suckle him because she was unable to. And of course, who did she go to? Moses' mom. So Moses and his mom were brought back together, and this time inside the Egyptian court, and Moses was kept safe from the edict to be killed. Because now he's been adopted by the princess of the Egyptian court, and they're not going to kill him at that point. His mother was able to interact with him, and they came to know each other. His mother's faith begins to pass to Moses. Now, the other interaction was... Moses was also probably learning about the Egyptian gods and learning how to speak to them and what they're capable of and who they are and which god was for which issue. And I'm sure that brought up questions, questions that he discussed with those who were Egyptian and would be able to teach him those things, but I'm sure he also brought up those questions with his mother, who would be able to teach him about the true God. The skill of faith is a belief or theory developed through observation and experience. So faith for us, there has to be observation And there has to be experience. It requires action or testing. 
And then it requires to be able to see the outcome, retest, and find out if the same outcome is reached in every circumstance. I'm going to read uh, Luke 12. This time I'll start with 22. And it says, And he said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, Do not worry about your life, as to what you will eat, nor for your body, as to what you will put on. Anybody there yet? Just asking. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storm, uh, storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour of his life's, life's span? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory and money and courts and wives not even Solomon clothed himself like one of these lilies. Couldn't even replicate it. But if God so clothes the grass in the, in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? You men of little faith. As much as I've experienced in my own life and had faith and had it been shown to me and, and expanded and grown and those types of things, I still feel as if I fit into that category of ye men of little faith. Raised in Pharaoh's courts, do you think Pharaoh... And the princess were able to give good gifts to Moses? Good skills? I would agree. I think, they, I think they were. They had the ability to do it, and I think they probably did it to the best of their ability. Would we think that maybe their focus was wrong? Yeah, probably. I love the... Uh, one of my favorite movies out there is um, The Ten Commandments by... Um, the original Ten Commandments. I love it when Pharaoh brings his son to the God of death and asks him for his life. Asks him to restore his life. Puts his faith in the stone that he has learned and believed that is much, much more than just a stone. Who taught him that? Who developed his faith in that? Partially he did. Partially those who were teaching him did. He didn't just come up to a stone and say one day and go, Wow, you are so powerful that you can restore life. AA talks about having to choose a higher power. Something that's greater than they are, something that's more powerful than them, so that when they struggle, they are able to turn to that higher power, believe in that higher power, take chances in that higher power, and move past their struggle in the addiction. 
Many choose the God of creation. Many don't. And I have heard it explained that when you're looking for a higher power, that that higher power could be the tree outside. It could be the clouds. It could be something other than the God of creation, the God that made the things that they're talking about. How does a person get to that belief? Did they one day decide, I'm going to trust you, tree, and they go out and they win a brand new car, and they go back to that tree and give praise to that tree? I don't know how how it happens that way. But they don't want to believe in a God. A God that is powerful over everything. Apparently, Moses knows who he really is. We've moved down a little further in his life. When he becomes angry at an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, Moses knows he's Hebrew at this point. Moses kills the Egyptian... And then Moses flees and ends up in Midian. In Midian, he aligns with someone who is a um, raises sheep and goats and, and those things. And they introduce or reintroduce Moses to the God with no name. Moses already has had some training with this God. He's never had a full experience with this God that we are aware of. So, the God of creation and the God of the Hebrews. Here, Moses is is (laughs) intrigued, I guess is the best way, um, about a bush that burns but doesn't is not consumed. And that's up on the mountain of Sinai, and they call that the mountain of God. Moses meets God because he climbs up this mountain. He's not even supposed to be on this mountain. People who go up on this mountain are killed. They die. But he is goes up on this mountain. He comes up into an area where he can see the bush. The bush. And Moses meets God in the burning bush. I I, I don't even know what to do with that if I was him at that point. I'm I'm just going to read through Exodus 3 and 4 because this is his experience at the burning bush. If I can get there. Fingers don't want to work all the time. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold... The bush was not burning with fire, yet it was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why the bush is not consumed or not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. By the way, that one verse was my reason to wear sandals to church and then take them off. Did it for a long time. It was dumb. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face. Moses knows those names. Where did he learn them from? The 
the Lord said, am I in the right place? Yep. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of the uh, taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. And my heart would go, yes. And to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Yes. No more slavery. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh. Wait a minute. Stop right there. So that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? What do you think is going through his head? I killed a guy. The penalty for that is death. And there is no time at which that sentence will not be carried out if I ever return to Egypt. And he said, certainly I will be with you. That's God that will be with Moses. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Do you think these are unnecessary questions? I think they're actually really good questions. Because Moses is going, Oh, well, I know this is going to happen. I know this is going to happen. What do I do? He's actually asking God to prepare him. He is developing faith. Let me find out where I was at. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said thus, You shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. This is a name that the sons of Israel would have recognized. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my uh, name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Go and gather the, the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord your God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed con, uh, concerned about, your, or about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will pay heed to what you say and you and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt and you will say to him, the Lord your God of the Hebrews has met with us, so now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst, in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver 
and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus, you will plunder the Egyptians. I'm going to skip down to um, 14. Then the anger of the Lord... Wait a minute, let me go back up. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have uh, never been eloquent, neither recently nor in times past, nor since you have uh, spoken to me, to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Here is Moses trying to get out of it again. The Lord said to him, Who has made man, man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? It is not I, is it not I, the Lord? Now then you go, and I even, I will be with you, uh, with your mouth, and teach you what you are to say. But he said, Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. The anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron, the Levite? It's almost like I have so many backups, you have no clue. Moses had the opportunity to go first. Moses was afraid. He looked at all of his inabilities and put those out there. So here we see Moses apparently uncomfortable in going back to Egypt and speaking to Pharaoh. And he kind of checks God's thoughts of having him go. God eventually gives Moses the option of Aaron which is not the first option, the best option. It's the secondary option, but it'll work because God is behind it. I wonder sometimes if sometimes our own shortcomings, our own places where we fail in other people's eyes, where we fail as we see it in God's eyes, in a sense, thinking for God. Because of our own inability or our own lack of ability. I wonder if sometimes our shortcomings in our faith are not rooted in God. And what I mean by that, not the lack of, it's not the lack of trust for God, but rather in our own physical and social abilities or lack thereof that makes us back off, makes us not jump at the first time God told us to do something. Years ago, I was sitting in Cal Baptist, and it was at chapel, and I always sat in the back. And one day, I'm sitting there just reading scripture, and out of nowhere, in my mind... It was almost like God or the Spirit were speaking to me and said, I needed to go see my aunt. And I need to let her know that she needs to ask for healing and that God will heal her. That was it. Well, at the time, my aunt was, I think she was in her mid-60s, maybe early 70s. And... She had double pneumonia and was in the hospital and did not ex- the doctors did not expect her to make it. So I sat on it, you know, like every good, obedient child would do. And I sat on it and I thought about it. Nah, that didn't happen. And I eventually called my mom and we discussed it. And she basically just encouraged me to go up and follow through because it wasn't going to hurt anything. And, he, and the outcome would tell me whether it was true or not true. 
Right? How do you test a prophet? By the outcome of what they're talking about. So, another week goes by. You know, it's been almost a month at this point. And I finally get in the car and drive up there on the weekend. Still, just not sure that I should be doing this. And, because I did not want to misrepresent God in any way, shape, or form. So, I go in there, and her husband was in there. And um, these are, I had a good relationship with both of these guys. They're the ones who, when my parents were working, were at home and raised me. Um, when my parents were not there. So I have known these guys since I was maybe a year to two years old. Um, so I went in and I talked to her and she goes, oh, it's so good to see you. And, you know, I appreciate you coming and visit me in the hospital because I'm sick and all this stuff. And I kind of just stopped her for a moment. And I said, this isn't initially that kind of visit. But, and I still was hesitant. I said, I have a word from the Lord for you. And she goes, okay. Now, she was one of the four spiritual prayer warriors in our family. Um, I said, the Lord said he would heal you, but you need to ask. So, and she's like, okay. She didn't, after that, she didn't say much. A couple minutes later, we went back to regular visiting. And I was talking with her husband a little bit, but he was not saying much. And then I left, went back to my mom's, hung out for a few minutes, and then headed home. Back to Riverside. I get a call. Maybe a week later. And the doctors were getting ready to send my aunt home. She had no signs. See, Stephen? Here we are. She had no signs of any illness in her body. And she reported to me that she asked. So for her, her faith was there. It needed to be stimulated, right? For me to go up there and struggle with that all the way through really was a hit to me developing my faith. A hit in a good way, but a hit. What I found out maybe the following week was that, and this was totally unexpected, my uncle, who had served in World War II, kind of walked away from his faith with God. But I found out that as he overheard me and watched his wife heal, she actually ended up outliving both her husband and her son, which is interesting. But his faith in God returned to him. And it was that way for the rest of his life on this earth. So, I always wonder sometimes if what limits us in our development with God, faith or otherwise, is really us looking too much into the lack of what we do, can do, our abilities. Or, as our faith develops and we recognize the voice of God, or the voice of the Holy Spirit, that we obey and do. So, teaching of faith or any other skill. Parents will teach faith first. It is the first people that a child is in community with. 
Secondly, with that would be other family members that are in the home. And then also, um, this would, and then it begins to go to other extended family members such as grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, those types of things. But this would happen really between the ages of one and five-ish. Okay? Then it goes, you add into those things teachers and then friends based on family interactions with the community. Probably those will have an effect on a child's development in faith, probably around the ages of 4 to 14. From here, the best one can probably do would be through influence. And that really probably be around age 12 through adulthood. You can't control the child at that point, but you sure can influence them, right? And how the child sees you is going to be big. So parents will transfer the skill of faith through direct teaching. You're sitting down talking to your child about what the Bible has to say about faith and what the scriptures are and teaching them how to, to remember those. Through indirect teaching, such as now what you're doing is you're living the life out in front of them. You don't know they're around, but now they're seeing you doing it. Which reinforces their ability to keep building their own. And at times, the parent should let... You know, I think this is a... I really believe the parent at times should let a child... Once a child becomes old enough to converse back and forth with you and understand simple topics... I think the parents should allow that child to teach them what they are learning, both in the home and out of the home. And this act of teaching, the act of teaching is the highest form of learning. It was told to me over and over. I never realized that when I started teaching in jiu-jitsu and I took over the dojo. The fact that how much I was teaching amplified what I was learning and how to apply it and everything else that went with it was night and day. Now imagine applying that same idea to allowing your child to teach you about some aspect of the topic of faith, since that's what I'm talking about today, but it could be other skills, to teach you about what that is you will be able to know what that child is learning, what that child is putting back in their mind and holding on to, and what they're not learning. So that other point in times, and I wouldn't say when they're doing it or right after they just did it, but at another teachable moment, you can correct maybe what they got wrong. The small aspects or the large aspects. Lead them into the next level. What kids see as valid, hear this, what kids see as valid, they will return to that source to watch and or ask questions believing in their own mind and heart, the source they return to is a valid source. That being said, maybe you're the one about biblical, and you're the one teaching, and they come back of all kinds of life accounts, and you bring back into them, this is what God says about it, I know the struggle that's there, this is probably what you're going to go through, Understand, I'll be here for you, and I'll help guide you, and letting them struggle. Or, it could be the drug dealer down the street. 
or the atheist down the street. Because as they see that person being valid and what they're talking about comes through and works, then that's who they'll return to. I loved it when heaven, which most of you know, started returning to me and returning to Robin asking all kinds of faith-based questions and life-based questions because she saw us over her friends as valid sources of information for her to use. I couldn't have asked for more than that. Highly important, highly, highly important is to teach a child to know God's will through reading, studying, and prayer. Luke 12, 12 says this, The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what to say. And I've been in those situations, and I can tell you if it would have been me that opened his mouth, I would not have gotten the same outcome. Because my heart was about setting it right. Making sure you know what I'm saying and I'm going to pound it into you. And you don't get to talk. Because you don't agree with me. And I don't think anybody in here would have responded to that well. Now in the beginning and end, again, the skill of faith exists in the internal. But the majority of the skill is carried out and practiced through us in the temporal realm. This is the temporal realm. The realm that God is in is the eternal realm. The skill comes from God. We pass it on through direct and indirect teaching here in this temporal realm. I want to look at Moses one last time, and I'll just talk it through because I know you guys aren't used to surviving 45 to an hour, minute, hour sermons anymore. But in Deuteronomy 34 through 1 through 8, it talks about Moses dealing with God and that God tells Moses it's time for you to die and you're going to go with me. And they have already put um, Joshua into position and Moses, because of his faith and because of how he was stretched and grown through leading that people for 40 years and interacting with God, I would suggest pretty close to a daily amount. I don't know for sure I wasn't there. But when it came to his death, he trusted God so much He just followed him. In the beginning, Moses was hesitant. He didn't want to go before Pharaoh. He didn't want to go back to Egypt. All of that stuff. And now, he goes without questioning. We do not receive the full balance of faith at birth or at the moment we give our life to God or, or when we receive the gift of the Spirit. Growth of faith starts small. That is where our minds start and where we can understand what that topic is. We learn about the one who authored and who is the author and the backer of our faith. He's not a tree. He's not a stone statue. We must go through times of growth. And I'm sorry to say that those times typically are found in the valleys. And as Randy was talking about earlier today, it's when life tends to be the most rough. The deepest growth 
of your faith does not occur on mountaintops. The celebration of it does, but the growth does not. Let's pray.